Radio Mano Papachango. It's a lazy Wednesday afternoon. I owe you guys some Tomas. God knows I owe you some Tomas and Romas. This is Aroma. I'm going to play some music. I'm going to answer some emails or at least read them and respond to them. I'm going to rant and rave a little bit. Uh, welcome. No guest. If if somehow you stumbled onto this podcast and this is the first episode you're listening to, this is uh, atypical. There is no guest in this episode. This is just me ranting out my ass, responding out my ass, something beginning with R out my ass, responding to emails, talking, whatever. Uh, things that have been on my mind recently. Here's one. It occurs to me that there's a fundamental difference, an underappreciated difference between things that exist on an open-ended spectrum and things that exist on a closed spectrum. That sounds abstract and incomprehensible, but it's actually a very simple idea. There are things where you get a certain amount of it and you're saturated, like wetness to be very literal about it, right? You can be totally dry and then there are degrees of dampness leading up to total saturation, at which point you can't get wetter, right? If you're submerged in water, that's it. That's as wet as you can get. But then there are other things that don't have an end point, like fame or money, you can always get more. And I think we, we run into confusion. Uh, we run into some sort of cognitive problems where we fail to differentiate between these two things. Uh, so food, for example, you can eat a certain amount of food and then you're full, you're done. You, you, Eating anymore is just, there's no point to it, right? Shelter. Okay, you get, shelter means you're not getting attacked by the elements. You're, you're sheltered. You're protected from the elements. But of course, you can have a bigger and bigger and bigger house. You can live in a fucking shopping mall, right? And I think this is part of the problem that people keep spending money having more and more and bigger and bigger without appreciating that rule of diminishing returns, that they're not really getting more. The bigger your house is at a certain point, okay, a one bedroom, nice. I live in a little studio right now. It's nice. I spend most of my time outside. It's in LA, so it's fine. If I were in a place that rained a lot, I'd want more interior space. Uh, Two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms. At a certain point, if you're living alone or it's just you and another person or two, at a certain point, it becomes superfluous. Then you're just paying to heat extra rooms. You, you don't use those rooms. Uh, even I grew up, the biggest room in the house always was the dining room. We almost never used it. It was the biggest room in the house. Very weird. So, like I said, it's not a super profound thing, but... Just differentiate between the things where enough is as good as more than enough. In fact, enough is better than more than enough because there's maintenance costs involved. Like our van, Scarlett Johansson, I think, is the perfect size. It's the perfect vehicle. If it were bigger, it would be too big. If it were smaller, it would be, pretty, it would be too small. But definitely, if it were too big, it would, if it were bigger, it would be getting too big. So there are these points. There's a sweet spot. 
That's what I'm trying to get at. There's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot for the size of your shelter, of your house. There's a sweet spot for how famous you get. I think I'm kind of in that sweet spot right now. People who know who I am, when they meet me, they get a little a little like flustered, a little like, oh my God, I've heard your voice so many times. But it's not a big deal. Within five minutes, we're just two people talking. So it, it's not an impediment to hanging out. I've, I've hung out with other people who are, you know, really famous and it's a hassle. It's a hassle for them. It's a hassle for other people. It's an impediment. It's, it's impossible to relax around them. Uh, you know, like Neil Brennan has this great thing. I think it's in three mics where he says, you know, he hangs out with super rich, famous, uh, famous people sometimes. And he says, it's like, you never really relax around them. You learn to pretend to relax the same way you learn to pretend to ignore the cop at the red light next to you. But you never really are just like, yeah, fuck it. There's a cop. I don't care. You care. You always care. You always feel like, this isn't, this isn't a normal relaxing situation. You're always on stage somehow. So, uh, okay. So that's my point. Uh, if we looked at things like money or fame as 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 existing on this closed spectrum the way i was saying wetness does or food does or sex i mean how much sex can you have before like i remember reading somebody's quote that uh it was like sex you can never have enough money until it's too much. And I think the point there was that it's very hard to find that point of balance where it's like, okay, it's not too little and it's not too much. It's just right. Let's just keep keep it right here, dialed in right here. It's hard. I mean, I think that's true of money. Certainly a lot of people are just like, fuck, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, and then you have too much. Anyway, I don't know, maybe that's not so profound, but that's what I've been thinking about recently. I've also been thinking about how the United States, this moment in our history is interesting in so many ways. I mean, it's hard to do anything else. I just, I'm I'm tempted to just sit here and like, listen and read and think about what's going on right now to this country. It's so fascinating in a grotesque traffic accident, train wreck kind of way. But so much of it is, in retrospect, is predictable. I mean, America is a colonial empire, uh, and the empire is starting to to crash. Uh, for those of you who are interested in these sorts of things, again, I will highly recommend a book called A Short History of Progress, by Ronald Wright. It's fantastic. It's short. It's easy to read. It's um, very profound. And he shows how empires have a life cycle and they all sort of go through the same phases. And once you've read this, it's very easy to recognize what's going on in the United States right now as uh, we're, we're well into the throes of the, the final collapse and, uh, you know, it, it's not surprising. It was just a question of when. It's surprising how quickly it's happened um, and it's happening. But the fact that it was going to happen, as you'll see if you read that book, is pretty much 100%. Um, and the characteristic of it is interesting. There are two things that really jump out at me. One of them is that we are experiencing... The United States is experiencing uh, a form of colonial wealth extraction that the United States has been inflicting upon other people around the world for about a century. So you go in there, you drain the country's um, wealth, natural wealth generally, their copper, their fruit, their... Uh, natural resources and when and you install a, a corrupt regime to run things and to keep the the people in check 
you look at the Philippines, you look at Chile, you look at Argentina, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, you know, pick a fucking country around the world. That's pretty much the way we've been doing it. And, uh, and when you loan money to the to the country and then the, you know, the oligarchy steals all the money and then you gut the social services in order to pay off that debt. So the rich people take the money, send it off to Switzerland and the poor people lose their access to healthcare and public transport and food assistance and everything else in order to suck that money out of the country. So it's, it's all a scam. Uh, there's a book called confessions of an economic hitman that gets into this in some detail. Anyway, that's what's happening in the United States now. So it's, it's exactly the same mechanisms that have been applied to other countries around the world. We've now turned on ourselves. It's, it's like the, uh, I don't know. It's, it's an animal that's the, or an organism that's now feeding on itself. And that is, as Ronald Wright explains, that's the essence of empire collapse when the empire turns inward and rather than pulling wealth from its extremities in toward the core, now it's feeding on the core itself. And so we see Trump passes this huge tax cut that goes to corporations and the top 1% and then turns around and says, yeah, see, we can't afford to pay for the Obamacare anymore because, you know, we don't have any money or, you know, we have to send all this money to Afghanistan and, you know, pay Raytheon for more Minuteman missiles that, you know, we're sending all these weapons over to Saudi Arabia and another scam where we lend them the money to buy the weapons from our own companies. It's just all this circular sleight of hand bullshit that's been going on forever. But now we're the victims. The citizens of the United States are the victims. And so we see them reacting with anger and confusion and resentment and and the powers that be will, of course, try to keep playing us off against each other and convincing the angry white people that the black people are the problem and the Mexicans are the problem and anybody but the puppet masters is the problem. So my apologies to you Trump supporters who are listening to this podcast, both of you who have still put up with me all this time, but that's how I see things. All right, before we get to some letters, let's play a little music, a little uh, musical relief here. This is Kate Vargas. She listens to the podcast. She's based in New York. Uh, she's, if Tom Waits and, uh, oh, I don't know, Nora Jones had a love child, I think she would sound like Kate Vargas. You can check her out at i think it's kate vargas hold on i've got it right here katevargas.com yeah that's pretty cool kate vargas v-a-r-g-a-s this song is called rise the moon the war is over someone had said the word's been rattling First as a whisper, then as a scream, then as a joke, then as a dream. The dream's been chasing that minute hand. Perhaps I believe I'm all willing. Listening, I took to prayer. 
recently on Eon. By the way, if you reach it on the internet, it's really worth checking out. It's spelled A-E-O-N dot C-O. I think it's pronounced Eon, Aeon, I don't know. Um, Anyway, of all the websites that I regularly check out, this one has the most consistently interesting pieces for me. Uh, this essay is called Against Mourning, uh, Mourning as in Grieving. It's by Brian D. Earp, who's an associate director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy. And it's about the Stoics. If you're not familiar with the Stoics, they were uh, Greek philosophers in ancient Greece who Stoicism is misunderstood. It's now it's often used to mean someone who has no feeling. They're stoical about it. They they don't express any reaction. They're very you know they're they don't betray any emotion in their face. But that's not really what they were about. It's sort of a bastardization of or misinterpretation of of what they were about. And this essay gets into it. So it's about when someone dies. Uh, The Stoics argued that if you are really a Stoic, if you you live your life according to the principles of Stoicism, you wouldn't grieve. And maybe this is part of where the confusion comes from. Um, Because they were attempting to live their lives according to rationality. Uh, I'll read from it here. The Stoics sincerely believed that a perfectly rational being which is a status status they think we should all aspire to, would never give in to sadness at a funeral. And yet it seems natural to ask, who does not mourn uh, the death of a loved one? Uh, So Seneca is one of the most famous um, Stoics. Uh, Marcus Aurelius Epictetus, Epictetus, these are the sort of the best known of them. Anyway, uh, now the, the the sort of mainstream view of mourning and grieving is, look, if you truly love someone, it is simply not psychologically possible to not grieve when they die. So if you fail to grieve, you must not have really loved the person. 
or you're psychologically flawed in some way. Um, now, what the, the Stoics here, I'll read from it. How can the Stoics deny this and, in fact, reach the opposite conclusion? They deny the first premise that it is psychologically impossible to love someone, truly love them, and yet remain unmoved by their death when it arrives. It's just that you have to spend your life to the day, to the hour, mentally preparing for such losses. This is what is so different about their intuitions and our own. To put it simply, if you are not a Stoic philosopher, if you have not been training yourself to calmly face life's vagaries and inescapables and you feel no hint of sadness when your loved one dies, then there probably is something wrong with you. Uh, however, as Epic, Epictetus instructs, one should not be unfeeling like a statue, but rather maintain one's relations, both natural and acquired, as a pious man, a son, a brother, a father, a citizen. He also repeatedly emphasizes that we are social animals. Um, so in other words, they agree that we're deeply social. They agree that uh, the loss of a connection like this is extremely important and, and difficult. So there's a, a sort of wisdom in this because what they're saying is differentiate between what you can change and what you can't. When someone's dead, they're dead. You're not going to change that. So... To the extent possible, don't waste your energy rebelling against something that is indifferent to your rebellion. Um, and they're also saying, pay this bill in installments every day, every hour, by constantly being aware of the presence of death. This is something Duncan and I talked about quite a bit in our podcast last week. Um, and in being conscious of that, in refusing to succumb to the temptation to enter into denial about that, about the presence of death, you then make yourself, you don't protect yourself from it, but your your accounts are in order. So you're not... You don't suddenly find yourself with a massive debt that you didn't see coming emotionally, psychologically. Um, in other words here, I'll read from the, the article. In other words, Stoics can afford to grieve as little as possible because they have spent their lives training. And that means ridding themselves of false beliefs, learning how to face the inevitable and carefully matching their desires with the will of Zeus. So when the worst things happen, when a child, friend, or spouse is struck down in an unplanned hour, the Stoics' muted response will reflect their hard-won preparation, not a lack of love or affection. So this is um, an interesting way to, to approach life, uh, and it's something that I think we sort of are getting at a lot in this podcast, you know, with... Carsey Blanton song at the end every time and and not turning away from these things. Try, I, I'm not interested in wallowing in it, but certainly in, you know, keeping death uh, a vital and easy part of conversation along with all the other things, all the other taboos that make people uncomfortable, the fucking and the shitting and the snot and whatever else comes up. I think it's important to have a place where anything goes. And, uh, you know, we're talk we're comfortable talking about these things, not because of some perverted desire to offend people or make people uncomfortable or anything, quite the opposite. It's, I honestly believe that in keeping these things current, you deflate them a little bit. You take a little of their power. Um, and if you ignore them, you know, the monsters you refuse to face just get bigger and bigger and more ferocious. All right, let's look at an email. Let's see. Uh, this is from Philip. Hey, Chris, I'm a big fan of Sex at Dawn in your podcast. I'm in my early 30s. 
I reached a point in my life where I'm reflecting more and more on the consequences of my relationships. I live alone, don't have any kids, and uh, I date off and on. I'm currently single. I've been giving serious thought to the idea of a, of a vasectomy. For some reason, he capitalized the word vasectomy. Interesting. Can a Freudian slip be in typing? <laughs> I trust the women I've dated with their birth control, but accidental babies happen, as you know. I truly desire lifelong serial monogamy, just not the prospect of having children. I know that a vasectomy, capitalized again, is pretty much permanent and should only be considered as such. Furthermore, I'm aware that if I have one, I would be cutting myself off, <laughs> little pun, from a huge swath of women in the dating pool as they desire children. I was wondering if you have any stories of men who have confided to you over the years that they've had a vasectomy and also what your general thoughts on the subject might be. Thanks for your time. Well, I think one thing that jumps out at me here is you say you're cutting yourself off from a huge proportion of women in the dating pool because they desire having children. Yeah, but does the vasectomy cut you off from them? Or does your desire to not have children? I mean, you're not going to lie to them, right? You're not going to misrepresent your feelings about having kids. So it seems to me that Assuming you're not going to lie and misrepresent yourself to women, the vasectomy is immaterial. You're not going to talk about that on the first date, probably. And if you do, well, who cares? Better. You know, I, I often say to people asking for dating advice, the one thing I'm really comfortable saying to people is, if you know your non-negotiables, get them out early don't negotiate them and give people the right to say thanks anyway and move on. Learn to do that without feeling personally rejected. There's nothing wrong with you, dude. She wants to have kids. You don't. Like, get that out early because the longer you wait to talk about that, the more painful and disruptive and the more time you will have wasted. I was with a woman for six years and I was honest about it early on, but she was very young. We were both young and we both, I think we both went into it thinking, eh, who knows? Things will change. We're in our twenties. Things do change in your twenties, but that didn't, didn't for me, didn't for her. So we reached a certain point where it was like, oh shit. Yeah, I love this person, but she wants a life with kids. I want a life without kids. And, you know, she was getting into her later 20s and it was like, fuck, I got to I got to get out of this um, so that she's free to meet somebody and fall in love and, you know, go down that road she wants to go in because there are biological considerations to think about. So I don't know that that's an issue that you're cutting yourself off from women. There are plenty of women who don't want kids, who already have kids. You might meet a woman who's got a kid or a couple of kids and fall in love with her. And you've got kids, even if you did have a vasectomy, you know, and that's a pretty beautiful way to go if it happens. Uh, so I don't think that's an issue. Uh, I, I think the, the only real question is, are you sure? If you're sure, then go for it. You're in your early 30s. Seems like, you know, early to mid 30s. That's when that period of anything can happen, things can change radically. Uh, that, that period starts to shut down around then. So, you know, if you're 22, I've told the story before, I wanted to get a vasectomy in my early 20s. And the urologist asked me as a personal favor to him not to do it because he said, come on, you're 21 or whatever I was. And like anything can happen. You could meet a woman and change and everything can be different. And yeah, but turns out he was wrong, but I appreciated his, his, um, sincere advice. Uh, 
So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really see a problem with it. If you're sure you don't want babies, then yeah, get a vasectomy or just, you know, use condoms all the time. Uh, it's nice to not have to use condoms, but if you want to have absolute control of what you're doing, then that's probably the way to go. Uh, unless you've talked with the woman you're with and, and you both are in agreement about Okay, what what would we do if you got pregnant anyway? So you got to talk about that stuff. And if you're with a woman you can't have that sort of conversation with, then yeah, definitely condoms and or vasectomy. On that note, let's play some music. This is from the island of Cabo Verde, way out there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean which has a very interesting musical signature sound. It's I can tell it's from Cabo Verde the minute I hear it. It's like reggae. You can just tell it's reggae within a, a couple of beats. Um, this is uh, Maria Alice. The album is Lagrima y Suplica. Lagrima is tear. What's Suplica? To supplicate. To to beg, to beg, to beg. So begging and tears. Ooh, I don't know. It's a happy song, though. It's called Stancia, I believe. And uh, check it out. Hope you enjoy it. do you give to a young man who's lost and scared on what to do with his life i dropped out of college i went back in i went back out i work multiple tedious jobs i'm going nowhere at the moment i have no parents and would love to have the right guidance especially at this most confusing time of my life for someone my age i should be partying and traveling and all that 
But due to circumstances, I can't. You seem to know it all. Been there, done that. I was also wondering what you did at times like this when you were young. What drove you to become successful? First of all, I'm not successful uh, by any standard measure. My net worth is negative. I live in a studio apartment. Uh, I, both my, I have two vehicles, both of which are well over 100,000 miles. Uh, you know, if you're looking for the trappings of best-selling author and world fame, I'm not the guy. I am successful, however, in the sense that I make a modest living doing something I enjoy. I have wonderful friends and, uh, in, by my metric, a very high quality of life. I have a lot of free time and even when it's not free, I'm investing it in things that I want to invest it in. So, you know, I think a big part of it is decide what success would look like for you and make sure you're not pursuing someone else's concept, someone else's idea of success. And I think a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people have their ladders up against the wrong wall and they don't realize it until they're already so far up the ladder, they can't bear to come back down and start over again. So there's a lot of um, potential beauty in being where you are right now. You're down there at the bottom of the ladder and you're trying to figure out which wall to put it up against. And so in a way, being a little bit stuck and a little bit confused is a good thing. Now, this guy doesn't say... Uh, Marlon is the guy. He doesn't say how old he is. So I'm guessing he's 20, 21, you know, 25 or under. Uh, and at that age, it's good to be confused. Now, if you're one of these people like my wife who knew, always knew exactly what she wanted to do with her life. She knew she wanted to be a healer. Uh, that's great. Pursue that. If you really know that's what you want, it's your identity. But even then, you might find yourself trying to move your ladder later in life, as she is. Because, you know, you might train to be one kind of a healer, and then you get down the road and say, well, actually, you know, I want to approach this in a different way. And so always be ready to change, even if even if you know where you're trying to go. You can change your mind halfway down the road. But as far as being very young and, and working multiple tedious jobs, try to look at that as a learning experience. A lot of people never work multiple tedious jobs and they have no fucking clue what's going on in the world. They just go right into college, right into law school, and then they get some fucking job in a tower somewhere and they're sitting in a cubicle moving papers around and, you know, helping this bank become part of that bank. And they don't know what it's like to wait tables or park cars or change the oil or pick people up at the airport or, you know, whatever. I mean, all these things that make the world go round, at least the industrialized world, it's good to have some insight into that, even though it's a giant pain in the ass. I've worked in factories, I've pumped gas, I've, you know, I've done that shit. And I sure as hell didn't enjoy it when I was doing it, but I'm very glad now that I did it because I think it gives me insight into the way lives are lived that a lot of educated people don't have. And like so many things, you think you can imagine it, but you can't. You can't. If you've never been to India, I don't give a shit how many movies you've watched, you can't imagine it. Because... You know, your mind's eye is only one sense. You're not smelling it. You're not hearing it. You're not feeling it. It's not a total sensory experience when you imagine something. It's just one or two senses at most. So the first thing I would say is give yourself a break. Don't expect to have it all figured out at your age. There's a great beauty and luxury in not having it figured out and being able to go down the wrong road and turn around and come back without having gone too far yet. That's wonderful. And I would say, take advantage of that. Enjoy that. Because the thing is, look, 
you've got problems now, things that make you anxious. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where your life is going. There's a lot of insecurity. That sucks. I know. I I remember that really sucks. It's scary. And those things will hopefully lessen with time. You'll have more security. You'll have more of a sense of direction. Uh, You'll have less instability. But you know what will happen then? You'll miss it. You'll miss the uncertainty. You'll miss the instability. Because instability is chaos. And chaos, anything can happen in chaos. It's exhausting, but you have lots of energy. You're young. It's a good time for chaos. Chaos sucks when you're older and you're tired. You don't have that much energy. You don't have that much patience. You don't want to sleep on, sleep in your fucking car and sleep on your friend's sofa. Now's the time for that. Enjoy it. And don't yearn for what's coming later because it'll come. And when it does come, you're going to miss this. So the sooner you can recognize that, and I know it's hard when you're young because you don't have that duality of experience. You haven't seen that happen yet. So you just have people like me telling you, oh, you know, enjoy it while you're young. Youth is wasted on the young, all that bullshit. It's true. And so if you can capture even a little bit of that wisdom that comes with time and calm yourself down and ignore the parts of you that are desperate for things to change and just really focus on what's beautiful about where you are right now and enjoy that because the deeper you enjoy that, the more interesting things are going to be later. And I don't mean enjoy it like party all the time or, you know, run around and act like an idiot. Being young doesn't mean being stupid. I think there's a mistake there. Like being, I don't understand why Americans yell yoo-hoo a lot. Yoo-hoo. When they're like, they have to announce to the world, like, hey, we're partying. Look at us. Woo-hoo. And they all put their arms up in the air. That's not being young. That's just being an idiot. Sorry. I know I sound grouchy when I say that. But uh, there's a, power to uncertainty and riding those chaotic waves of youth that is beautiful and if you can recognize that and just ignore the fear things are going to work out things are going to happen in ways that you can't imagine right now and um and then you look back and long for the things that you left behind I'm going to play a song right now that uh, pretty much expresses exactly what I just tried to say. It's far more articulate than that. It's called It Is What It Is and That's All, and it's by Steve Forbert. I fell to this dream girl in Danville just in this central time zone I used to kill hours to meet her on time And then lost one as well driving home Mexican boy on Doheny Selling her map to stars' homes Maybe he's homeless and maybe they're gone In the afternoon traffic rolls on Driving a Jaguar's impressive but you can't watch it go by The Manhattan skyline is a sight to behold But probably best through New Jersey-based eyes It is what it is and that's all What are you going to do? Will some fool look up on a clear day And say that the sky's not a true enough blue? It never much rains, but it's pouring Everything happens at once Flat tires and light bulbs While picture frames fall From the wall where they've hung fine for months It is what it is and that's all Lay down the mat by the door 
With some fool rushing from a cloudburst and say, Hell, I'm soaked and I'm totally bored. Out there by the interstate, the duplex I call home ain't quite the quietest place on earth to catch your breath. Non-stop highway sound makes backyard picnics out to lunch. Fact is, my next door neighbor's fine, completely deaf. Maybe you wish you had money, then you might think you could live. Life is so brief, you may think time a thief. Better live for whatever it kills. Pondering the future, you worry. Listen, somehow you'll get through. Then you'll look backwards and long for the things that you'll find it's then too late to do. It is what it is, and that's all. When are you going to see? Friends tell you true, and your granddad did too, but you won't take advice, it comes free. Get what you want, you don't want it. Not even glad while you eat. Wait for your flight while the heavyweights fight And the planes try to land in the sleet It is what it is and that's all Birds can't row boats, baby blue Well, some fool sit stuck on the runway and say Hell, it's only me this happens to It is what it is and that's all It is what it is and that's all It is what it is, and that's all. Can't argue with that. All right, let's do one more of these, and then I'm going to call it a day. This is from Philip. Uh, I've read Sex at Dawn, and I'm enjoying your podcasts. In a previous podcast, you mentioned that when children with disabilities were born in hunter-gatherer groups, they would often be left out in the woods to die. I understand why this would be so. Calories were hard to come by. So, therefore, it's best to invest in a child that isn't disabled. However, I was wondering if you could please answer a question on this. What would happen to a young or middle-aged adult in a hunter-gatherer civilization if they were suddenly to acquire either disability or chronic illness? The reason I ask this question is that I myself have a physical disability. While I agree with you on many of the ills of modern capitalist civilization, if I were asked which environment I would want to exist in, I would reluctantly choose civilization out of selfish self-preservation. However, I would love to hear if there was a possibility for the disabled to exist in hunter-gatherer communities. Thank you, Philip. That's a very interesting question and one that I get into in some depth in Civilized to Death. Um, let me, let me answer this or, or respond to this on two levels. First, just the purely anthropological question of how disabled, um, people would fare in hunter-gatherer societies. There's mixed evidence on this. On the one hand, there are some skeletal remains that have been found way back. I'm, I'm probably a hundred thousand years old, maybe older. I don't remember. There's one in particular I'm thinking of that I think we might've written about in sex at dawn that showed, um, the skeleton was of someone who suffered from a vitamin deficiency, um, that was evident in their, in their bones and it was a lifelong issue. They probably couldn't walk or certainly couldn't walk well or as, as quickly as normal people. And the person's age at death, I think, was in their 30s. So judging from this, it was clear that somebody took care of this person. Somebody brought them food their whole life because they really couldn't hunt. And um what their value was to the community, I don't know. Maybe they were a healer. Maybe they were a shaman. Maybe they had some mystical abilities. Um, they must have contributed in some way for the rest of the people to sacrifice 
a little more work, a little more vulnerability um, to bring this person around with them. And there are so few skeletal remains uh, from that long ago that we tend to extrapolate a lot from very little. And so there's a lot of room for error there. We don't know how representative that particular finding is. So we don't know how commonplace something like that would have been. In studies of contemporary hunter-gatherers, what I have read is that there isn't a lot of that kind of uh, space made for someone who is disabled. Um, Certainly not children, even twins, even healthy twins, one of them is normally sacrificed. Um, because it's, it's felt that the other has less of a chance of survival. Um, or or they both have less of a chance of survival if, if both are alive. Uh, I think that in, in, uh, don't sleep there are snakes, which is, um, a very in-depth account of the Pinaha people which is, I really recommend. It's a great book if you want to get an insight into their lives in the upper Amazon. Um, There's a very disturbing section where he describes a woman uh, who apparently is in the, caught up in a breech birth and she's dying and screaming and nobody helps her. And they feel that it's just between her and the spirits and whatever happens is going to happen. And um, to to the guy writing it, I forget his name, a linguist, Daniel Everett, Daniel Everett. um, It's excruciating to not intervene. um, Because from our perspective, of course. I don't know that I would know what to do in a breach birth situation, but the the way that they accept the powerlessness of their situation, the, there's a fatalism toward things that he found disturbing. And yet uh, over the decades that he lived with them, I think he came to understand and appreciate on different levels. See, I think when we look at these questions of life and death, we have this unspoken premise that being dead is horrible. And there's no evidence for that. I don't know if this goes into the sort of Judeo-Christian or Christian sense of heaven and hell. And so the afterlife is this horrible, you know, probably horrible place because we all know that we're secretly sinners or, or where it comes from really. But there does seem to be underlying all these discussions. There is this feeling that death is failure. Death is horrible. Death is lost. Death is dark. Death is everything negative is, is wrapped up in death. And yet where's the evidence for that? I don't see any evidence for it. All I see is that all we know for sure is that death is the absence of life and Life, as we know, is a mixed bag. Uh, you know, it's on the net, I would say life is pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. It's amusing. So at least there's that. But being asleep doesn't suck, right? It's not like you go to bed every night and just, you know, grit your teeth because you got eight hours of torture ahead of you. So I don't I don't really understand where this assumption that death is bad comes from but it definitely underlies all these discussions uh you know it few very few people would venture to argue that maybe being dead isn't worse than many kinds of life if you knew for example that you were going to be born into a cage and spend your whole life living in a cage eating pellets and uh, a cage the size of your bathroom, would you, if you had the choice, would you say, no, thanks, I don't really want to be born? 
I would. Uh, so when we open up the question and say, okay, well, wait a minute, maybe death isn't necessarily bad and therefore every kind of life isn't necessarily better than that, then it opens up the possibility of, you know, a kid who's born with some significant deformations or incapacities having them die may not necessarily be worse than helping them to live that probably sounds horrible but i think when you remove this unjustified uh, in my view assumption that any life is better than death then then things start to look different the conversation changes and now i you know i understand philip who's writing has a personal stake in this right he says i would reluctantly choose civilization out of selfish self-preservation well of course he would because he's alive but if he weren't alive then it's a different question if if see and this is one of the things that's very strange when we talk about these sorts of issues it it relates back to what i was saying about the stoics earlier if we talk about these issues in a purely rational way it sounds cold-hearted and horrible and yet if you look at some of the highest status occupations in our world pilot surgeon general uh, these are people who we are asking to think and behave in purely rational ways. We're asking them to ignore their human instinct because human instinct leads you to save the kid who's sitting in front of you rather than step away and let that kid die because you're saving a hundred other people triage when a when a doctor arrives on a or a first responder arrives on a at a plane crash for example they don't save the first person they see what they do is if they're thinking rationally they go through and they say okay we can save this one that one's already too gone that one's too gone keep walking walk past i'm sorry that one's you can't help them or i would be here all day helping that one person and meanwhile, a dozen people are dying of something that I could have assisted with in five minutes. So I know it sounds very cold and, and hard to talk this way and think this way. But that's because of these unspoken, unexamined assumptions that I think contaminate the discussion. I don't think non-existence is a problem. I think non-existence is the absolute absence of problems. So now once someone exists, then it's a different question. What can we do for them? What should we do for them? What, what is a, you know, a viable investment to, to save them and so on. But if someone doesn't exist or if someone exists just for a day and the mother says, nah, this isn't going to work out. I don't want to deal with this. How big a loss is that? And I think this dilemma, this kind of um, incapacity to really look at these issues clearly is what causes a lot of the confusion and bad feeling around abortion. Because for some people, those are people. And for others, those are non-people. Those are more like ideas or the fetus is a more of a concept than a person. It's a potential person, maybe somehow, um, where other people define a fetus as a as a person and granted personhood and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think that um, it's essential that we think these things through, but I think it's very hard because the language and the sort of cognitive lexicon of our culture is very unclear about it. So. Uh, I don't know if I've answered that question or if I've just made more of a mess of it. But yes, I do think that Western civilization, if you're going to 
live as somebody with a severe disability, this is definitely the best time and place to do it. Uh, someone with a severe disability would not have survived long in the ancient world, in hunter-gatherers or in Rome or in Greece or in most in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's not just hunter-gatherers, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, we wrote about hospitalism in Sex at Dawn. I mean, not even physical disabilities, but just kids who, you know, were born to people who were poor and didn't have any money to pay for them, or a woman who wasn't married, and so it would have been, uh, you know, social severe stigma to have a kid those kids were left to die so it's not just hunter-gatherers it's uh everybody until very recently and in many parts of the world it continues today babies uh girl babies are left to die in india and china in in the millions um so this stuff continues and Depending how you look at these things there, and certainly I'm not talking about the girls, I'm talking about people who are going to have a, a life of severe difficulty and dependence. And um, you, I can understand many ways of looking at it. And one is, thank God we live in a time where people like that have a chance and, and have we have technology and enough um, surplus resources that... Um, that they can have a life. And another way of looking at it is, uh, well, in, in these other cultural contexts, they wouldn't have had a, had a life, but is that so bad? Because there's no one to be asking the question. I know that's not a satisfying answer, but um, I think it's very complicated and very interesting, and, and it brings up a lot of uh, important issues. So thank you for the question. I'm going to call it a day. That's an hour. I can't listen to myself talk anymore. I'm going to play a song. I know I've played this song before, but I don't know if I've played this version of it. This is the song Big Jet Plane, which haunts my dreams. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Uh, let me find. This is by, this is um, a cover. Uh, the album is Alive, Death Time, Eternal interesting name for an album it's an ep and it's big jet plane featuring sarah corey and the the i don't know if it's a band or just the dude who's rapping is tuka t-u-k-a he's australian and uh, i really dig this version of it thanks for listening i hope everything's cool out there in your world and i'll be back soon with a normal edition of tangentially speaking take care I grew up at the end of a long dirt road No street lights, just a couple trees You could probably see the wallabies Bounding around in their brown fur coats Most stays walk the whole way home Jigging my step, nothing but the air in my lungs Feeling my breath, singing my songs that I wrote in my head And every now and then when I look up at the sky I could see a kookaburra fly I'd begin to daydream, think about my wingspan Chase the sun around the globe, so everywhere I go It's summertime, wonder what people get stuck in the same place Don't be thinking about what they say Oh fuck it, take about a humble pie Don't you worry about what they say, yeah Politicians only think about its net worth From East Sydney to West Perth Topman and a Cape Bay You put the legwork in but you get burnt out That's why you sing piss every payday hey, Have you ever gone away? Do you ever think about a holiday? Are you in the business of making money? If you haven't got a dollar then I guess you go to wait Maybe we can win the lottery Get high by the beach, Alana Del Rey Maybe you can follow my lead Get fly like a kite in the breeze Take you for a ride on a big jet plane. 
Yeah.